0: Hey everyone, Ben here. Just a quick note before we get to this week's excellent interview with GM Josh Fridell. Next week's episode will be either on time or delayed or missing entirely. I don't know. I'm going to be traveling for work. I'm going to be doing a decent amount of that this summer, so... I'll be tied up, but the excellent news is that Macaulay Peterson of The Full English Breakfast and of Chess Base, esteemed member of the chess media with excellent knowledge and connections in the chess world, has agreed to guest host Perpetual Chess, and he's working on some exciting guests. So I'm not exactly sure when it will come at this point, but... That will be coming soon, and there'll be a bit more later in the summer. So it's exciting stuff, and I really appreciate that Macaulay is going to step up and provide you guys with some excellent content. So with that out of the way, speaking of excellent content, please enjoy this interview with Josh, and I will catch you guys soon enough. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. So we've got another great guest this week, well-known American grandmaster. He uh, does some chess writing, does some chess presenting for the St. Louis Chess Club, uh, is known to give good chess lessons, and most of all, of course, is a chess player and grandmaster, Josh Fridell. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Josh, what got me thinking of inviting you on the show, I've been, of course, aware of your great chess play and reputation in uh, American circles for a long time, but you just launched this YouTube series called Autopsy, where you presented your first video last week, and I greatly enjoyed it and thought, hey, now would be a good time to ask Josh to come on the show. So, could you tell us a little bit about the idea behind this series? Uh, I appreciate that.
1: Um, Yeah, basically... There were lots of people doing streams and things like this, but to be honest, I didn't think me playing Blitz or doing something like that, It's everyone's doing it, and I don't play Blitz well online, it would be a disaster, <laughs> and probably embarrassing, so I wanted to kind of do something which I'm a little bit better at, which is actually like explaining stuff and um, you know doing these videos, so I've done videos before, but I wanted something that was more readily available to kind of broaden my audience and that kind of thing, so... This concept of autopsy is basically that, you know, analyzing a game and taking apart every move and every detail is actually very useful, but it's also time-consuming and, you know, it's it's something that not everyone has the patience to do. Uh, so what I'm focusing on is I'm going over, say, one game a week, but I'm focusing almost exclusively on where exactly was the game lost or where did things go wrong. So... Not just like, okay, what were the actual moves that were the mistakes, but the thought process. Like, what was the problem? Like, in the one I did, my first one, there was one position where uh, it was a Ronan playing black. And he played a very understandable move trying to trade bishops, but it just lost too much time. And then for the rest of the game, like, he refused to, you know, open up the game and try to get counterplay. He wanted to create no weaknesses. And it was more that the thought process itself was what led him to losing rather than you know, any one mistake, uh, I think. And just that kind of view on on losses. And obviously, if I'm using elite games, they all they, you know, have a better thought process than I do. But I can still usually find where they went wrong. And uh, that's kind of what the focus is.
0: Yeah, no, and it's appealing for a player, like a player like at my level, for example, because one thing I struggle with in elite games is I kind of don't know why you know where someone went wrong so mm-hmm. I, I know that uh Aronian and carlson as you you just conceded and as you mentioned in the youtube video obviously they're they're stronger than you but you're a lot yeah. closer to being able to exp- um, explain their thought process than i am or than you know basically any of your viewers will be so i really enjoyed it and i think it's oh, uh you. it's important for for chess players you know it's
1: it's- I think so, too. And and also just with computers, like people can look at the computer and go, oh, bishop g5 takes c1 in this particular game was a mistake because it's now plus 0.5, right? Or something right. like this. But that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't explain why he went wrong. It doesn't mean like, because to me, bishop g5 was such an understandable move. And I understood immediately why he played it. But at the same time, when you look deeper in the position, you realize, wait, that was actually a bad thought process. And it led him to just a very difficult position against, you know. <laughs> the world number one. So yeah, exactly. Just, the you know, guy it, who knows how to punch you. At that level, it's it's so little. These little things that do it. Um, but a lot of it's just, I think, with computers, like people have a false impression of what it is actually like to play a game and what the mistakes are made and all of this. Like I don't know. I, I'm hoping that taking it apart will at least uh, shed some light on these these mistakes and like how they happen. And honestly, even at every level, whether it's mine or yours or just beginners a lot of the same problems actually come up and the same bad thought processes. So um, trying to take them apart, I think, could be useful for lots of levels.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like like the idea in the video you showed of, like, uh, Aronian needing to accept a structural weakness rather than just try to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Um, But in any event it's it's a series that i hope you stick with and i also think the the length is good i mean there's a, as you say there's a lot of streaming there's also a lot of sort of quick recaps of mm-hmm. games where you know you might get one or two take takeaways or you might see a nice, ta- nice tactic or something like that but you're not really going to be able to um dig too deep into what went wrong uh, in especially in an elite level game so yeah i'm i'm excited for it do you mm-hmm. i you mentioned in in the video that you've got other ideas in mind for what to show do you have anything specifically cooked up yet or is it Um, going so so,
1: i mean uh, what i'm going to do is i'll probably for my next one i'll show a uh you know i'll show another elite game probably from the same tournament uh just because it's going on now people are watching that it's something uh for people to sink their teeth into i might i might do a game of my own where i know what i was thinking during the game so i can go a little bit deeper and show my many errors in (laughs) in thought essentially uh but i can do it from a personal standpoint so you know when when people themselves are trying to go over their own games they can use that as a template sort of and at some point i'm hoping if it it really becomes popular and people like it um i I can have people send suggestions for games or even their own games at some point and maybe pick one per week to go over and that could be an interesting way to continue the series
0: Excellent. And the current tournament you mentioned is uh, Altabox Norway, right? Yes. So are you following that pretty closely? Yeah. Okay. So we won't, uh, we won't get into the horse race aspect of it because mm-hmm. here we are recording on Wednesday night with one round to go and yeah. this will come out Tuesday. So no, no need for so, us to make embarrassing so people predictions.
1: We'll, will know what we don't.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. But I did want to ask you and I had mentioned to you beforehand that I mm-hmm. would ask you about this because one of the storylines that's emerging from this tournament is, uh, Magnus Carlsen, um, uh made a little comment about uh a pre-arranged draws from Mamad Yarov and Karyakin uh saying he'd noticed it as a pattern in their games in the past and um basically uh I don't know if you'd call it an accusation because I don't know how wrong it is. What's what's your opinion about pre-arranged draws at the elite level?
1: Uh so that's that's a tricky question. I, I would say that in okay in like for example Open events or things like this, they happen kind of all the time. Yeah. And it's almost unavoidable, especially when you have, you know, people who are, you know, very good friends or study people playing together. Or relative, like, it's just something that's fairly common and it's hard to get rid of. In elite events, when they're being paid, like, quite a lot, it, it makes sense to really take extra steps to avoid it. Um, but I can tell you that whenever you have two people who want to draw – Right, uh, and they're very strong. They can play thirty moves. They can play forty moves. They can sit there for two hours. You can make it more annoying for them, but you're not going to stop them.
0: Yeah, they, um, and, yeah, and they can play like some cooked up, crazy looking game that will entertain the masses, sure. but still ends in a draw. Yeah, yeah, but.
1: and the fact is that sometimes these things happen. Like you can walk into someone's analysis and have to find a draw, and I don't think you should be penalized for that. Right. So I, I think that you're going to have some false positives and things like this. So I mean honestly my my solution, which doesn't sound very original, would be you keep an eye on these players and organizers keep an eye on these players and simply just don't give them invites at some point. Wow, because then it's like you either like let them know like look, we've noticed this, we see any you know more games that are like like it following this pattern, we're just not inviting you
0: Wow, so just and, out of curiosity yeah. had you, had you noticed this between these two players uh,
1: I, I would say like certain players have more of a reputation for it than others uh-huh. uh-huh. But it's honestly hard to tell because, like, a, a game like that, the one that they played, it was a really complicated line. It was clearly Kariakin's analysis. Mm-hmm. But Mamijarov was spending so much time, it's at least possible that he didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very forcing line, and I would say he prepared rather poorly if it wasn't arranged. But you can never go 100% on these things because it does happen that you walk into people's analysis um, there are certain really well-known drawing lines where you're you're basically 100, um, you know, and and I would say that you'll there are very few grandmasters who you will interview or you'll see who haven't done it at some point.
0: <laughs> right. Well, like you say, in open yeah. tournaments, I mean, you, you know, you. Need I, to... I wish
1: I could say I haven't, but I certainly have. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, especially in these two round a day tournaments that are common here in the states, you, yeah. you like managing your energy levels is uh, a yeah. part of the competition, basically.
1: Yeah, and my most recent one, actually, I hate to say this, but I was uh, very sick during the tournament, and it was a (laughs) round-robin. So basically, I I could barely play. Yeah. Uh, I was basically offering and accepting draws (laughs) at will. And it's like everyone's kind of been in that situation, and it's like I I would say that if it's a rare thing, and, you know, it it shouldn't be too big a deal but if there are people who are you know getting paid serious money showing up at events and doing this then people should just not invite them because it's not good for fans it's not good for how chess looks um you know and if and if one of these players stops getting invited i think that it'll at least send a message that look this isn't going to be acceptable
0: yeah that Um, makes me
1: that's really the only solution you can do it and you can only do it of course if there's a real clear pattern but it's I just don't see any other way to do it because, honestly, any kind of rule you could set, they can get around.
0: Yeah, and obviously this, you know, things are moving in the right direction if we look back to, like, Soviet mm-hmm. era where, yeah. you know, not only draws were prearranged but wins and losses sometimes, so...
1: Uh, yeah, and, and, of course, I mean, that still can go... That still certainly goes on in some places. It's not like that's completely behind us. Um, you know, e- even even in the US, even, even other places, like, it certainly... To say it doesn't happen would just be naive um but at the same time I would agree that we're moving in the right direction now of course we have to worry about computer cheating which they didn't
0: <laughs> Right that's true uh, and so, and uh, yeah I think mainly at the elite level I, it's not that people have become more pure yeah. it's that the the incentives aren't as strong to cheat as they used to be at least at the yeah. very top level but here yeah. in America where people can be fighting for you know a big prizes you know
1: yeah. uh it I'm sure that it happens unfortunately I've competed in my share of, of Swiss tournaments, and, you know, there are certain pairings where you just know, oh, no. <laughs> that's it's funny. Like Please don't. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh,
0: you're probably not going to name names, but uh, I'm sure. Uh... Uh,
1: probably not a good idea, but
0: <laughs> yeah. people mostly know who they are. So, you, Oh, that's interesting. So, like, within, you know, behind closed doors, like, players of It's if you're... not
1: even, so, I don't even know if it's dying closed doors. It's just, you know, people know, and... Mm-hmm certain people you know when they're paired in the last round it's just super risky um, right <laughs> and you know some of them have been banned for it before too so it's not like it's first time for certain people but uh i i definitely know there was one tournament where i uh ended up sharing first where maybe i should well with i shared it with two people and i probably should have shared with one let's put it
0: that. oh interesting
1: yeah that's <laughs> so that's I, i've seen it happen and it's, it's kind of but you have to you know as far as what, like, there's nothing I can really do about it, so it's like, okay, you you shrug yeah. it off. and Not doing it yourself is a good thing, but yeah, yeah, and you know,
0: stewing about it probably isn't too productive. Even I'm
1: not much of a stewer. <laughs> that that's <laughs> not good. really my thing, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, it yeah. definitely can happen.
0: Yeah. So so Josh, so your name has come up a couple times on the podcast because um. You know, mm-hmm. your friend Jesse Cry uh, mentioned yep. uh, the chess house back in San Francisco, and I think David mm-hmm. Bruce mentioned you as well. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, but now you're in Wisconsin. So, one thing I wanted to to find out about your background is how you ended up there.
1: So, my journey was basically, I grew up in New Hampshire, um, where I was for about, I'm probably getting, I probably should have looked at this before I got interviewed, but I was about, I was about 20 or so, 19 when I went to California, basically David Proust invited me, he got the Sanford and he invited me to study with him. And I was teaching, but I was, you know, not doing a ton of local teaching and all this. So it seemed like a good opportunity. So I went and I um, moved to California and I studied chess with him for a while. Uh, Jesse ended up moving there later. I ended up studying with B'nai B'at as well. And that's where the chess house concept, I never actually lived in the chess house. I get asked this all the time. What was it like to live in the chess house? Did not live there. Uh but I, I lived near them and I and I went over to to study quite a bit and it was kind of a, a good thing. But uh at some point like David didn't really play anymore. Jesse wasn't studying much, he was working on his book at the time and he was very busy and it just didn't seem it's an expensive place to live. I, I like Northern California, it's a nice place, but I was in El Cerrito specifically, but it was like you know, nice place, but it's just too expensive and at some point I got an offer. A friend of mine in Wisconsin, you know, has a company that teaches in schools and things like this. So he offered, uh, this is Alex Bettinelli. He said, you know, why don't you move to Wisconsin if you're looking for a place and I can fix you up with some schools and things like that. So um, that's how I ended up here.
0: Okay. And how long have you been there?
1: I've been here since 2011 is when I moved.
0: Okay. I'm guessing you do pretty well in the Wisconsin State Championships.
1: Uh, I don't usually play. I played this okay. last year, actually, because uh, they, they 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 kind of invited me and in all of this. So I was like, all right. And it was across the street, literally. OK. So I'm like, all right, I'd be kind of irresponsible not <laughs> to play. <laughs> so I usually avoid local tournaments. I I, I just, you know, it kind of reminds me of when I used to play when I was much younger and I would go to these events with bad air conditioning and you'd sit there and sweat for four games a day or something. And, you know, I felt like I had like I'd earned to not play there anymore. <laughs> right like usually badly run tournaments not always some of them are good but you know I, I was like all right i've earned not my place not to do this so but occasionally i'll go and it's like it's kind of a nostalgic thing a little bit but um but yeah i did i did play this this last year and and i did win but it wasn't uh it wasn't a walk in the park i i gave up a draw to actually one of my roommates eric santarius who's very strong like 2400 ish um and i and i almost lost in the last round to a a very, an, an expert who was playing like really nice game, and I ended up somehow swindling him. But it was not a walk in the park. But I managed oh, yeah. to win.
0: So I may take them lightly, but you, but you know better.
1: Uh, lightly on your uh, behalf, I should say. No, I, I, I always assume the worst. I always assume <laughs> that everyone can beat me. Like it's right. just safer that way. Otherwise, for me, overconfidence is very bad. So. I okay. Assume everyone's super strong and they're going to kill me. And then I'm pleasantly surprised.
0: Nice. All right. Well, we'll, we'll get back to that. But one thing yeah. I wanted to uh, get a little more detail on is so you said you moved from New Hampshire to California. So did you go yes. to college at all? Or did you go straight? Uh, I did straight not. To Cal- I went,
1: I I got into I got a couple scholarships, you know, to the chess schools, I got into a couple other schools, but I didn't really if I had something in for sure, I wanted to study in college, I would have done it. But I was interested in medicine, but I knew I didn't want to become a doctor. I was interested in – I had a lot of interest, but nothing I really wanted to do except for chess. Chess I knew I wanted to do. So most people I know who went to college ended up not doing so well with chess. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to – I can teach, I can make a living, and I'm going to do chess.
0: Yeah, so. that was the main thing I wanted to get a little more detail on from you. Is I mm-hmm. don't know if you saw this quote from Hikaru about mm-hmm. uh, strong chess players going to college. I, it was just this week. Did you happen to see it? No. Um, he was talking about, uh, someone, some elite player who may be going to one of the schools in St. Louis. And he was saying, yeah. you know, if these guys go to college, you notice they stop getting stronger. And he kind of singled out Laquan Liam, um, you know, num- yeah. about number 25 in the world, um, who's, who's been going to college with a chess scholarship the past few years. But I found it, found it interesting. I mean... A that he just like named someone like that, but B the the general idea because they are going for a chess program, but on the other hand they have a lot of other responsibilities. Like I had Yaroslav Zherobuk on and you know, mm-hmm. the, the number of balls he was juggling was uh was rather staggering. So I,
1: I'm I'm truly impressed by the people who do this. Like I know that I couldn't do it. Like multitasking is not one of my strengths whatsoever. So it's you know, it, I I just look at these people and I'm actually, like, super impressed. Um, but really, like, what it comes down to is what they're there for. Like, there are some in the past and, and even currently who really are going, they're doing chess, they're coming here, they're getting a full ride, and they're basically wanting to do chess and school is not their priority. One of the common tricks is that they take a language they already know.
0: Right, yeah. It's like an athlete. So that's yeah. been
1: done. Uh, the most famous case was when uh, Wojtkiewicz did it. <laughs> who was in his 40s and that was very fishy but okay i mean but there are actually people i know who actually did go to college and do it and like liam for example is in that category and from what i hear i don't know him too well but he works extremely hard and he focuses on school and he plays chess because that's how he got his scholarship and he has to but he's really there not to improve at chess but to you know uh pursue his major i forget exactly what it is at the moment um it escapes me, but okay. So yeah, he's there for college.
0: So it sounds like Harkaru's criticism is well founded, and I'm sure he was, you know, aware of that background yeah. info that that you just shared. Uh,
1: it, it's possible, but it's more like, you know, it's not necessarily that they're weaker because they're going to college and they're distracted. They're weaker because they're that's what they want to do. They're not actually trying to do chess. Um, okay. They really, they're doing chess because they have to, but they really want to pursue college, and that's their focus. Um, whereas a professional chess player who is Doing college, but just doing college I'm sure they could improve just because they're not really as focused on the schooling, so
0: yeah, and there are resources there I mean if you have a coach like Ona Schuuck or Susan Polgar preparing materials for you and you have other strong players to study with uh, oh
1: yeah i mean it, it it sounds like a great thing to me, just in terms of like you have all these great players to look at chess with um so that aspect sounds pretty cool, but if you have a bunch of busy people who are actually doing school, they don't always look at chess together as much right um. Okay. So, so let's bring it
0: back to Wisconsin. So, so you mentioned you do some school programs there. So like what level players are, are you, are you generally working with?
1: So at the moment, I'm actually not doing schools so much anymore. Uh, When I first moved here, I did a bunch, I didn't have as many private students uh, as I do now. And I did some schools, but um, to be honest, I didn't really enjoy it. It was a lot of the times it's more like babysitting than teaching. And not not that it's a bad job or anything like this and obviously, you know, if you need money it's a good thing, but it's like to have a GM do it is very weird cuz essentially it's not it's not really that's not really what it is. Um and I was trying to do it and I, and you know, some some of the kids were pretty good and and I was happy to do it, um but the just the aspects of essentially you're babysitting kids for an hour is just not you know, a- again, when when I need money, of course, I would do that, you know, you have to make a living, but you know, it's long like at the moment, I have more students, I have more stuff going on, and I've made more at tournaments. So it's like, I would prefer to, to do that for a living. So essentially, now I teach, I do teach some kids, but it's almost all private lessons or occasionally group lessons, things like that. I don't really do schools anymore.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, just having mm-hmm. seen that, that YouTube video and a couple other of your presentations at the St. Louis Chess Club, it, it would be mm-hmm. a, a waste of your, your talents to, to be focusing on just uh, how the
1: night moves. Sure. I mean, you know, and that's part of it. Like, you know, I I want my skill set to be used, but a lot of it is also just, you know, enjoyment. Like, I enjoy teaching strong students or, you know, giving one-on-one lessons to even, even like an adult who's like 50 but really is passionate about the game. I enjoy that. Um, But when it comes to like babysitting kids who don't really have interest, like that's not, this is just not fun. So if I can avoid it financially, I will, right? Yeah, Yeah. makes sense. So it's, it's not just about talents being used. It's actually just. It's not, yeah, pers- not, yeah, not how I want to be living. So
0: yeah, makes sense. Uh, so when you do work with your students, Josh, um, mm-hmm. y- you know our, our listeners are always eager for for any any nugget of wisdom about how, how to improve their game. So what's your general approach with a student? Like if it's you have- top
1: secret, I, I don't
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you familiar with? No, I mean honestly, f- I,
1: my my theory is like people can have their own ideas, but essentially people teach the way they were taught. That's what I've discovered. Um, you know, and, and my, my focus and I think a lot of players also is like, you know, going over your games was the first thing. So if you're playing tournament games, you go over every single one and that's the way you improve. And one of the things is that it sounds one dimensional, but you can work it into so many things. Like if you have a game where, all right, here's an opening lesson, cause you messed up this opening. Here's a position in the middle game. Try to think about what you could have done here. Here's an end game. This is how this kind of end game works so you can actually take one game and work on every aspect of the game and make it personal because they've experienced it they knew what they were thinking so basically i would say my approach is centered around especially for tour i mean mostly for tournament players is who i teach going over their games um there are some students who that's pretty much all i do there are other students who they don't play as much so i design you know i do give them problems i do training type stuff i show them specific positions or openings but I would say that, for the most of them, it really is centered around self study
0: okay and and getting tying it in with your YouTube series that mm-hmm. that you've begun autopsy like mm-hmm. would you say that focusing on um what the critical mistake was or what was misunderstood? is that like a theme that runs through your teaching?
1: uh yes, I, I would say that that's what I focus on in most of the games. I would say especially. You know, because students can look at the computer and they'll see what they did wrong right away. Like, it doesn't make sense to just point out mistakes. And uh, I have some students who are clearly are annoyed that I have them think about what went wrong a little more. (laughs) Right. But it's basically, at least for me, like, I I think it's just I know it's what I have to do. So um, I, I just think that that's that's what ends up being more useful because it's so easy to check your games tactically or where your mistakes were. Like, you can just plug it into a computer so my job, I feel like, is to actually make them think about things a computer can't tell you. Like, okay, you played this move, but why did you play this move? Like, what did you miss? And was it just tactical? Were you thinking about the position wrong? Were you misevaluating? Did you think you were better when you were, in fact, worse? And those are the the factors that often lead to mistakes, sometimes more than just not seeing something.
0: Okay, so is there... And it's
1: complicated. Sometimes you just miss a tactic, and that's the way it goes. But a lot of the times there's an error in how you're thinking that, kind of precedes that
0: so is there like one mistake that you or one sort of cognitive error that or misunderstanding that you see more commonly in your students than others uh,
1: I would say it's it's looking at not looking at the whole position like for example I, I, I get this is one I get all the time they'll be I'll ask okay why didn't you go for this position they'll be like say I have doubled palms and there's a whole position with tons of stuff going on. One side has the two bishops. one side has a slight initiative, et cetera, et cetera. But just because of the doubled pawns, they didn't go for this line right and so I would say like you know they have their you know eyes too close to the ball. It's like you know you got to look at the whole the whole field like what's going on uh, and I, I would say like getting them to look at the whole board, assess the whole situation before making decisions rather than focus on one or two things because when people are Beginners, they're taught all these concepts like don't double your pawns, control the center, do all this, because most of the time that's all correct, right? Right. But the more you learn, the more everything is situational, and there are so many aspects in a given position. And the problem is you actually have to beat that stuff out of people. You yeah. notice GMs break these rules all the time, and there's right. reason for it. We're not just like, ah, we're GMs, we can do what we want. It's more like... You know, sometimes it's like that,
0: but yeah, it's a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, that's something exactly. that uh, John John Watson has written about mm-hmm. a lot. Co- common theme of his, and yeah, I mean, humans are are wired to look for shortcuts for heuristics. So it's yeah. uh, you know, you're always going to be uh, it's always going to be an uphill climb to uh, yeah. to to learn to get rid of them. But yeah, I agree that that's. Yeah, you know, and, and i I
1: can't pretend to be an expert in in brain science or anything like this, but I am very interested in that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of this in the book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. You've probably read right. this book, yeah, yeah, days. it's a great book. Uh, and I, I like a lot of that stuff. Again, I'm not by no means an expert in any of it, but it's it's interesting, and, and I can definitely see a lot of it in how people make mistakes in chess. But yeah, a lot of it is just they focus on one thing or they don't do something for some whatever dogmatic reason. But if you look at the position a little deeper, it's obvious this is. The lesser evil, or doesn't matter. I mean, double pawns don't matter all the time, and but so many people just don't do it because they're oh they're double.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they might not even like their analysis might just stop there. You know. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay, so in, in terms of resources, uh, people always want book recommendations, or if there's like a favorite presenter online, is there or or like material that you draw from? What What are your favorite resources to recommend both to so, your students? So
1: I, I, yeah. So I, I get asked this a lot and yeah. it's one of those questions I kind of hate just because <laughs> right. everyone says the same thing. Like, yeah, you know, so I, I would say, I mean, everyone has what works for them. I, I would say like, you know, I definitely use like have some kind of tactics, like tactics books or tactical website. I mean, I use like chess tempo and chess.com and it doesn't even matter. Just have tactics that you're doing regularly, like every day. doesn't matter what book, like, I don't even care if it's a bad book with lots of mistakes. Then you have to figure them out. (laughs) Right. Just any tactics, you have to be doing tactics all the time. So it doesn't matter what website you use. Um, As far as books that actually had an impact on me, I mean, I I would say Road to Chess Improvement by Alex Jermolinsky I really like because that really involved, like, a lot of the opening stuff he mentioned in there was either outdated or some of it I actually think was wrong. (laughs)
0: Uh
1: But it doesn't even matter. It's more about a way to think about chess, like, kind of, Things that are a little bit deeper that, you know, you can actually – ways that people go wrong and ways to correct how you think about chess. Um, Just I found that a lot of the stuff in there was interesting and also, you know, unique content. Um, Yeah. But as far as training books, like I use Agar books. I use – I've used Doretsky. I've gone over all that. And it's all good. Like to to give one recommendation I feel would be robbing people a little bit. One thing I would say though, which I recommend a lot, is do not stay on one book. (laughs) Huh. A lot of people, they'll say, all right, I'm doing this book. The problem is that every author has their own tendencies. Like, Agard, for example, I don't care if it's his positional, positional, positional book. The dude is crazy concrete.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I, I was looking at, because um, I work with uh, Alex Golden sometimes, mm-hmm. and we were laughing at one of his books because they were positional exercises and half of them were completely tactical.
0: Huh.
1: <laughs> like, they were these concrete ideas which had... Like we're anti-positional, I would say, of anything, but they were correct. There was nothing wrong with them, and it was really cool problems. But to, for us, it was like laughable that he would call it positional. But from his point of view, it probably was. So, but like for example, you get used to authors' tendencies, and then you kind of cheat, and it, we don't do it on purpose, but that's just the way it goes. Like any kind of book, like you know, for example, I really liked um Goprindishvili's book uh, with. Um, imagination and chess, which has a lot of really neat problems, but there's a pattern to them. And once you lock onto the pattern, you, you solve it easier and it, you're not learning as much. So hmm. one of the things I do is I jump. Okay. Like all the time, I'm doing different books all the time. Um, and you know, so I, I'd say that that's a big recommendation, not to just do one book to jump around because then you don't get locked onto these patterns. It cur- encourages you to think in different ways.
0: That's interesting. Um, and that's original advice here on this this podcast <laughs> yeah 77th uh, interview a
1: book that everyone's saying you know so yeah
0: well deborah i mean i'm with you when you say like you know it's it's not your favorite question because i sort of i ask because people all want the recommendations mm-hmm. but i i sort of feel the same way i mean it's more yeah. it's more how you study than what you study in my opinion
1: um, i i would say for sure and another one i would say is like have like i really like game collections so yeah have what inspires you like um, like, for example, I really liked one of my favorite books I read when I was young was the, um, the, uh, Pia Cup, the second Pia Cup. It was a, you know, super tournament. Spassky ended up winning over Fischer, and just the annotated games. It was even an old notation, which for me was a problem. Oh, it's brutal. It. I wasn't yeah. quite, <laughs> you know, uh, but I mean, I, I learned how to read it, of course, but for this book, but it was just such a you know, really cool book and the annotations are really nice and all of this and just, you know, maybe for other people this book would be nothing, but for me it was like, I read that book and I wanted to play chess. Nice. So, finding books like that, regardless of what it is, is, I mean, I really like game collections. I like Keras' games a lot. He happens to be a favorite of mine, but... Find a player you like, study their games. Like anything that makes you wanna look at chess and want to do all that, like that's the book you should be reading.
0: So what do you like about Karras'
1: games? I really like that he's universal. Um he's you know, you couldn't pigeonhole him. Like you couldn't say, All right, he's an attacker. Yes, he's a great attacker, but there are so many games like he's not aiming to attack. There are games where he plays really positionally, he can play he defended really resourcefully, but he was also good at pressing, you know, slowly for a win. He could kind of he really ran the spectrum and was very close to a universal player. He definitely had his own style, but I just really liked um, liked his games just for the fact that, you know, he really did it all. Uh, mm. And, and such so, a nice player.
0: And so, Josh, what's going on with, with your own chess? Like, uh, I saw that, you know, sometimes it doesn't tell the full story, but it looks like your free day rating is pretty close to its peak. You still managed to mm-hmm. play a decent amount, so um like are you still working on your game a good
1: amount uh for sure uh it's you know it's a work in progress I, i'd say like especially you know to be honest like okay i already got to a pretty strong level i'm over 30 so the odds of me improving if you just look at the numbers are not great <laughs> but i i would say in the last couple of years i've had more success um and a lot of it is that i'm you know is is to do with work but i mean i always have put in a fair, you know some study like i'm never just never studying right Um, but I wouldn't say I've been studying more lately or anything like that. And that's what led to greater results or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm always working on my chess and, you know, I have people I work with sometimes and things like this, but it's more, I I kind of focused on, I, I would say I play less than I did like five years ago. Um, five years ago, I used to play like an event a month, say now I'd say I play an event every two months, maybe. Okay. Um, so I'm not super active, um, but I discovered that that actually works nicely for me because at some point I was playing a lot, and every tournament kind of felt like a grind. And I would be professional, and I would go there well prepared, and I would play my openings, and I would you know do the stuff. But I, I just it, it it just felt like too much of a grind. Like it just wasn't really that enjoyable. And I you know I always liked chess, so it wasn't that that wasn't the problem. <laughs> um, but it just. I was playing too much, and at this point, I actually, I go out of my way, I don't, if there's a tournament I don't like, I don't feel like I have to play it, I just won't play it. Okay. Um. So I don't force myself to play. So essentially, if I see a tournament I like, I'll play it. If I see, you know, there's an organizer who is, I really goes out of their way for the players, I like events like that. Um. So, you know, I'll, I'll play in places I want to go, like say, ah, uh, Reykjavik Open, it's a strong event, it's a cool place to visit, I want to go there. So basically, I end up playing places I like and when I want to. And because I don't play as often, I'm always kind of wanting to play in fresh. Occasionally, I'm a bit more rusty than I used to be. So that can be a problem. But um, so I I found that that's kind of my approach now that I'm doing it for a living, sort of. But really, to be realistic, at my strength, to make a living from playing is very difficult. Uh, I'm not quite strong enough.
0: So who else or who, like where or who else? You mentioned there focusing on either places you like or organizers uh like uh wh- is there any any one in particular you'd also like to highlight besides Reykjavik whether an organizer or a place
1: um I mean you know I, I always enjoy playing I, I mean uh, essentially overseas tournaments are mostly nicer so mm-hmm. you know if I can find an event that's in a place you know I always like playing in Greece I haven't played there in a little while but like for example a place like that it would be something I would be interested in you know it obviously if it's too expensive or they don't give good conditions it's just harder. But um, you know, and I would say in the U.S., though, there are more organizers, like people, like, okay, for example, in the summer, there's Washington International run by Mike Regan, and then U.S. Masters one run by Walter High, and I would say, like, the conditions I get aren't, like, out of this world or anything like this, but the organizers put in effort to welcome players, to make their events strong, to... You know, do extra things, and I, I just appreciate that. Like, it's it's a rare thing, uh, especially here. So, okay. you know, I can't always make it. Like this year, I don't. I, I'm making Washington International, but I don't think I'll be able to make U.S. Masters. And it's not that I don't want to go. It's just it's not going to work with my schedule. But it's more like I'd be more inclined to support events like that.
0: Gotcha. And what um, would be like for a player at your level? What would be good? What would you consider good conditions?
1: So good conditions, like okay, like. I I would say it depends on the style of event, because obviously a really big open tournament with big prizes, I can't expect very much. Um, But, you know, I I would say it also depends because in the U.S., the conditions are far worse as far as what you get. But I I would say, like, for example, if they throw, you know, hotel room or they throw up, you know, two or three hundred dollars in the U.S., that's like. You know that's at least reasonable like they're they're making an effort to get players unfortunately i'm u.s federation so for norm events i'm not as useful mm-hmm. <laughs> so foreign players can expect more but you know if they throw in like a little bit of money they throw an hotel something like this which most a lot of the organizers who do that will do then to me that's at least okay that's something that is an incentive for me to go even if it's not in the end that much money like they can't afford to, like they just don't have enough money to to pay everyone like a ton, right,
0: yeah, so, I mean, and you're not looking to get rich, you know, yeah, just, I mean,
1: St. Louis would be the exception. They have better conditions at events like that, um but they they have money, so uh obviously events like that are excellent just because they're you, they're well run, it's at a nice club, they provide good conditions, but you can't expect everyone to have that kind of financial backing, so
0: yeah, for sure, so what is uh what's on your current schedule? what do you have coming up?
1: So in the summer I have U.S. Open. It's not a tournament I like, but it's in Madison, so I can stay with a friend and.
0: <laughs> yeah, what don't you like about it?
1: It's. I mean, just the not, first just four rounds many... I'm playing like seventeen hundred, nineteen hundred, right. twenty-one hundred. it's just. As it, soon as I just... asked
0: the question, I, yeah. <laughs> I realized the answer. Yeah.
1: It, it's particularly weak, and it's yeah. also so much luck. Like to have to have eight and a nine to even tie for first. It's it's just kind of silly, you know. Yeah. That's not really a tournament. I mean, in my eyes, that's just. It is a tournament and it you know I won it once obviously it's doable but it's like to me it felt very lucky cuz I you know I beat Lend I lost to Lenderman for example I was 6 and 0 I started really well I beat Sodora but then I lost to Lenderman kind of terribly so I was like oh I guess my tournament's over <laughs> but uh but I won like I played down the last two games and I was black Uh, in the last game against an IM, it wasn't like it was that easy, but it was like, I got a little lucky with, you know, not playing a GM in the last round, I ended up winning, then it got to a tie break, and then I could have just not made it, but I ended up making it, and then, you know, you play an Armageddon game after waiting around two hours, (laughs) right? and I won it, you know, again, like, you know, Mac dropped a piece, it wasn't like I did anything amazing, but it was like, you know, to me, it's just, there's so much luck, and it's, obviously, if you play really well, and you just crush everyone, you're great, but... It's it's just not really my type of event. Like, you know, if you get seven out of nine type of first, that's different. That's like a more reasonable score. If you have to score eight out of nine, the tournament's a little fishy.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I just want to say to listeners, that's sort of like, that's the pro perspective you're getting because Josh, yes. I mean, he's playing, you know, for him to be paired down 700 points, nothing good can really come of it. No offense to, to whoever he's playing. No, uh, I mean,
1: and, and occasionally, like, I, I actually checkmated in 16 moves with black last time, which was, which was kind of enjoyable, but. <laughs> It's not, yeah. it's just something I don't experience very often. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not, yeah, these are not really great games. And, yeah, you know, but, it's just, as a tournament goes, as far as interesting games and strength, and as far as, like, what you need to do to win, it's just not really great yeah like, it's honestly, not a great fit. there's a u.s championship spot which is that's what i was, one yeah, of the I, was incentives. I was gonna
0: ask about how how big an incentive that
1: yeah. was and and also like if i get in the u.s championship that also provides me incentive because it's like josh you gotta get better man you're right you're yeah. gonna get slaughtered in an event like that if you don't improve i always played well at u.s championship also but obviously it's stronger now than whenever i, I played so
0: yeah, but when it's in your backyard, I guess it makes sense to, to take a For shot. For the U.S.
1: Open, I'll do it. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I'm not ending up playing U.S. Masters, probably just because I have that in Washington International. To do three events in a month would be already a lot uh, as far as you know just being away from teaching and doing all this. So.
0: Yeah, uh, that makes sense. All right, yeah. so we, we have a, a question from Mike Klein of uh, chess.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not
1: answering any of Mike's questions.
0: <laughs> um, so, and by the way, before we get to Mike's question, I just yeah. want to g- give a shout out to his his new podcast. Uh, if anyone listening hasn't caught wind of it, if you like travel, you should check it out. It's called Extreme Travel Odysseys. It's kind of weird to listen to it and listen to Mike for 45 minutes. Never mention chess. but. Um, but yeah, it's an enjoyable, uh, side project that Mike just launched, but his oh. question of course actually isn't chess related, but it's uh, tennis related. <laughs> so uh, why do many, why do so many top players enjoy tennis?
1: I'm really not sure. I mean, people compare it to a chess match when, you know, when I'm watching it on TV all the time. And <laughs> yeah, they sure strange, do. <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, but there is, there is a, first of all, it's like, you know, obviously there's doubles, which I enjoy a lot also, but it, it's more like there's a one-on-one aspect, which a lot of sports don't have. There is definitely strategy as far as shot selection and things like that go. So it could be that, but it it could be random also. I don't know. <laughs> it's it feels like speculation, but there is some strategy. But to say there's no strategy in baseball would you know be shortchanging the game, right? So it's like I, I really don't know. Um, but you just like it? I, I definitely like it. I, I played it since I, for a long time. You know, I, I play leagues during the summer and things like that. So. It's definitely yeah. like a major interest I have.
0: So. Gotcha. Yeah, and your your Twitter bio says you're a uh, chess grandmaster and tennis and cooking non-grandmaster. So
1: yeah, I mean, well, okay, I, I have lots of things I study and do, but like I would say those are my the two things I do maybe best. I want to say like you know as far as other than chess, like tennis and 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 cooking are so like what, major interests which I do regularly. Also. What would you, what would your ratings be in those? Uh, so in, in in cooking, it's impossible <laughs> to say. <laughs> Uh, you know everyone has their own things they you know I, I, like for example I made pizza tonight which is relatively new and it's like they're, they're they taste pretty nice but you would you would take one look at them and be like a professional did not make this uh, right whereas some other things I make like I make you know for example uh, I just smoke chicken and stuff like that which is or roast chicken like certain types of dishes I'm particularly good at and those i think are at a pretty high level so you can't really rate them i'd say between but okay like say between you know 1200 and
0: 1900 <laughs> oh <laughs> that's a wide range i
1: have no idea it's it's really hard to say i'm better at some things than others uh as far as tennis goes i would say i can do it a bit i, I would say i'm between like probably not expert but above b player so a player-ish range uh at tennis i would say okay so basically like I can beat most club players.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, like,
1: strong club player, essentially. So, I'm not going to, you know, challenge Federer anytime soon, but I'm better than your average person. (laughs) So.
0: Okay, yeah, and able to appreciate it probably a little more than... uh...
1: It's one of the reasons I watch tennis a lot, too, because it's just... I actually know what's going on. Like, there is... (laughs)
0: It's a little different. Um, right. So so you could do an autopsy tennis series as well.
1: Uh, yeah. It wouldn't be quite as accurate, but... <laughs>
0: well, yeah. As <laughs> long as it's entertaining, it doesn't matter.
1: I, I'll make it entertaining. That's for sure.
0: So your student, Chris Wainscott, tipped me off that that you also coach Sam Shankland uh, a bit. Um,
1: uh, I used to. It was a long time ago. Um, when I first moved to the Bay Area, uh, David was like, yeah, so there's this... Uh, Kid who's, uh, you know, pretty talented. Do you want to work with him occasionally? We kind of pass him off between the teachers.
0: <laughs> right. So
1: Benai worked with him a little bit, then David. So he's like, why don't you take a shot? I'm like, I think they were just handing him off. They didn't want to
0: deal with him anymore. But. Because he, he was too strong or what? Uh,
1: well, he was strong, you know, and he was very strong-willed too. So it was like, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, teaching him could be rewarding, but it was very challenging. Like he was really already like very. You know, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but he was already very... Like, you had to convince him that you were right sometimes.
0: <laughs> huh, And it took a lot of
1: convincing. Uh, and
0: what was his rating, like, around at, this at time? At the
1: time I started teaching him, he was about 2100. Okay. So I'd say I taught him between... He was, you know, 2100 to twenty three, twenty three fifty. 2350. Um, and obviously, he, he increased at a huge... Because he started kind of late, but then he right. got better at a very... It was clear he was extremely talented, so he got better at a very rapid rate, and... But I was just one of many guys who helped out, and like to say I was like his main coach would be probably not right. But I definitely worked with him for a couple years, on and off, um, largely was... informally, some formally. But uh, oftentimes it would be like we'd look at chess a couple hours in the park, and he'd buy me lunch or something. Right. <laughs> uh, so well, it Josh... was, you know. But he was strong enough that it was it was definitely. Uh, you know, a fun thing to do. Um, Josh, if, if
0: he keeps putting up results like he has been, you're, you're going to need to reframe this narrative. You're going to have to...
1: Don't worry, I'm working on it. <laughs> I have, like, yes, I took him as a young boy and uh, <laughs> right. escorted him across the Atlantic and then t- took him to all the best... Yeah, I, I have it all worked out, but it, it, I'm actually currently writing it, so...
0: Nice. So what do you make of this? I feel like it's pretty rare. I mean, you know, hovering around 70 in the world for years, and now, I mean, he's pushed to, like twenty five in like a matter of months i mean it's
1: it's amazing well, I mean that happens like people make it, it, i would say inclines are very rarely um you know steady like right. everyone plateaus and then goes up and then goes, and the thing is he was he he was at like twenty between twenty six thirty and twenty six seventy say for a while, but it wasn't that long i mean a few years maybe three four years like i i don't think I don't feel like it was you know forever uh there are certainly players who got stuck for a lot longer so It was a surprise to me that he was able to break through so, like, because one of the things he struggled with was, you know, he could hold his own with very strong players, but he would almost never, ever beat anyone over 2700. Like, that was just, he, he would draw them all the time, but he told me, at least, this is what he told me, it wasn't something I noticed necessarily, but just to beat them was something he hasn't figured out. And even now, I guess he hasn't beaten that many, but he's really going to town on the 2600s <laughs> <laughs> right so i guess that's enough you know <laughs> if you can beat yeah. 2600s every time you're gonna especially get especially with high black rating. yeah uh yeah and and again like you know he, he'd have streaks where he wouldn't lose for a while but he would draw lots of games which is weird to me because his style when he was young and even now like it never struck me as solid but i think he just doesn't make a lot of large errors uh and he's usually very well prepared in the openings so these two factors make him very difficult to beat on their own. Like he doesn't blunder and he's good, well-prepared. It's just kind of tough.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no. it's fun. It's fun to watch. I mean, I, I hope yeah. he gets more invites and it'll make the Olympiad more interesting too. I mean, to have him at, at board
1: four for sure. I mean, okay, we already have so many strong players, um, you know, and we might be getting more like there's always rumors that someone's yeah, going yeah. federations. So he might not, you know, it, I think he'll make it, you know, us champion, obviously 2715, but you know, it's, it's still pretty fierce. So, uh, I mean, our Olympiad team's looking better every year. Uh, it's quite something.
0: Yeah, it, it'll be interesting this year.
1: And we might have a world champion on it at some point.
0: Yeah. Oh, so yeah, of course. So as I as I mentioned to you um before the interview, I, I feel like we have to talk about the world championship, but I'm already getting tired of just asking people uh who, you know, having every person say Magnus is a small favorite. Yeah. Um so I, what I thought maybe you could talk about a little bit is what openings fans can expect. I mean, I, I, there's one obvious to me, but I mean, I'll, I'll let let you answer the question.
1: Uh, that that's actually tricky to me. It's not obvious at all, uh, and the and the main reason is because if you look at world championship history, almost every player, even someone like Gelfand, who's extremely, he's like, I have my systems. I know them better than you, and that's all I'm playing. He learned a whole new opening, right? So someone against, like so what did he, what did he play against well as,
0: Anand just hmm? uh, forgive my ignorance but so yeah. what did what did he unveil when so he when he, he played, played, he
1: played and, the one, Grunfeld, which he never really played much of at all against Anand like right off the bat and that was the opening he used for the match right, right. Uh, And this is someone, again, who's a really great studier and is a versatile player, but usually sticks to his one set of systems. So for him to play something entirely new was unexpected. Now, you have someone like Fabiano and like Magnus, who I'd say are far more flexible opening-wise than Gelfand is. I I think they could play anything. Obviously, he's been grooming the Petrov and it's going well for him. And it's very possible he could use it. But he could also switch up entirely. He could play Carol Kahn all match. Yeah. Him, right?
0: Yeah. The Petrov but, was the one that I was thinking of, just for the record. Yeah, but, but no, yeah. No, and,
1: it's, and it very may well may happen. But it could also be, you know, he'll be like, look, I'm playing it a bunch and I'm doing well with it. But this is what he's going to be beefing up for. So I'm going to actually switch it up. And he's maybe at the mo- even right now, like learning something else. Um. But what I'm interested more in is not necessarily the specific opening, just the approaches, because I feel like they both have such different opening approaches. I'm I'm really anxious to see how they'll clash because it's like Magnus is really largely about okay, I have my types of positions. He likes E4E5, Lopez type stuff, he likes, you know, NIMZO-ish structures, that kind of thing. And you know, I you know, he's like, I just want to get a position, I don't care if I'm better or not, I can be slightly worse as black, it's fine. I just want a position where I can work with, like where the plans are slower, where everything is, you know, I can improve the game at my pace. I don't have to worry about the board opening up right away. Uh whereas Fabiano is very much like I'm playing the I'm going to try to play the best, the best moves and I'm fine playing aggressive and playing concrete and I'll memorize all lines all day. <laughs> right. <laughs> um and, and of course he he can also kind of mix it up, but it's like uh I mean, it's funny because I was going to say that, but then today he played a line which he knew was dubious, so who knows? (laughs) But it's also, he's very much a believer, though, in in just strong moves winning in the end. So it's like, he, but I feel like his approach to openings is far more concrete. So I feel like it's going to be a battle between Fabiano wants to really, you know, make the game forcing right away and have it be about homework and stuff like that. Whereas I really feel like Magnus wants to just get a position, like just get something I can work with, outplay. And it'll be interesting to me, like, Who kind of wins that battle um but usually world championship matches are weird too because they usually start with like they play a a, you know a few bs openings at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) just to kind of feel things out like all right what have you prepared what's going on they'll play king's indian attack early or english or just slightly off kilter stuff right away um but i don't think fabiano is going to do that i think he's going to come in full blast and uh i don't know I, i think it'll be really interesting to see how magnus handles him and how it differs because it's a totally different thing than when you play in tournaments it really is um
0: so do you do you have any experience like i mean obviously not in a world championship match but like (laughs) have you uh have you had much match play in your career
1: match play no it's something if you're not playing for the world championship you don't really get match play
0: yeah (laughs) the only match
1: i played was a mini match in the world cup against wang ha which uh, right i can't say was super pleasant um i ended up missing a flight because they canceled on me and then you know barely getting there the day before and then he refuted my preparation over the board which is always annoying <laughs> and uh you know i didn't really show my best chess and also he's much stronger than me so right. <laughs> it was not pretty <laughs> bad, bad combination no it was really bad i it was i did not represent myself too well that was 2009 uh, but okay. that was the only real match i played like you know, apart from you know random blitz stuff and all that, I mean, you just don't get to play matches. It's just not a format yeah. that most people play uh, almost ever. So occasionally there'll be invites to play them, but it's not. You know, usually I wouldn't be one of those people getting an invite for that. Right. It's usually either stronger or more, say, like players who are more well known or whatever. So right.
0: Um. So. You you just mentioned this tournament at the World Cup, which doesn't sound like your fondest memory. Do you what <laughs> what are your uh, what are your fondest memories in in your career?
1: To be honest, it wasn't like that bad as far as like it's an experience. Like I'm glad you know I can say I went to the World Cup. I lost, got killed by Wang Hao. I went over the game afterwards with him, and he spotted out like twenty move variations in a second. And I'm like, oh, that's what good chess is, okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, you know, and he's actually a—he's a nice guy. I've known him a little while, so uh, it was—it wasn't that unpleasant. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I—I I just didn't play very well. As far as good memories, I mean, winning U.S. Open was something. Um, just because it—you it, 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 know—it got me into it, and it was such a presser situation because it's essentially I'm playing one Armageddon game for a U.S. Championship spot. Right. Uh, I mean, there was $200 or something also, but I mean, whatever. Right. <laughs> and Mac ended up getting a wild card, which I thought was a good thing because it was like. I mean, an Armageddon game is so random. Um, so that's
0: that's Mac Molnar.
1: Yeah, Mac Molnar, and he ended up getting an invite anyway. But it was like it, it was to play one game for all of that, and I'd never have done that before. It wasn't like I play Armageddon's all the time. It's not, <laughs> you know. Um, so did
0: did you get to pick, or did he pick?
1: Uh he picked black, which surprised me because it was like it wasn't that much time. It was like four versus three, and he picked the three, and I was like, or maybe it was five four. I don't remember, but it was no increment or delay. So it's like that's risky and. I played pretty quickly, and he he blundered a piece, and then it was—I mean, I, I had to win, but it was pretty easy. Um,
0: uh. Yeah, so for—just in case—so for listeners who don't know, the way an Armageddon playoff works is one side gets less time, and the other mm-hmm. side gets to pick—I mean, black gets uh, less time, and uh, then— gets to pick the color basically one player picks the color so it's like do you want a time disadvantage um but draw odds or not i did not do a good job explaining that
1: yeah i <laughs> it's, people get it basically if you're black you can draw but usually you have less time <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: thank you and th- so thank you for that, explaining it, it in, I mean, in english is, like, yeah. for me
1: it was the first i'd ever it's the only one i've ever played whereas you take someone even for example like you interviewed tata right she's played yeah. probably several armageddon games and right it, because she's tied for the u.s women's a zillion times and it's like yeah she has, she doesn't have pleasant experience in him, obviously, you know, but it was like, she's played him, you know, she knows the deal, and like, players like that sometimes have that experience, but for most players, you know, say around where I am, like, an Armageddon game is very rare. Um, right. You but know, I you did have wanna... to tie for first in an event, but even then, most events don't do that. Um, honestly, I, Armageddon is kind of, it's, it's just, it's not a great way to do things, just because it, it's really counter to what chess is, but at the same time, you gotta break a tie at some point, and uh i guess i
0: find that i like them i find them entertaining
1: uh, they, but, they're definitely entertaining uh, yeah but it, it's also it, it was just i think that he was and i and i, I you know because i talked to him afterwards he's you know, a friend of mine or whatever but it just like the nerves really can get a hold of you and i think that happened with him a little bit and it was just you know it makes it hard to think uh maybe one of the only things i did well that game was i just you know i'm kind of kept cool and I tend to be relatively relaxed even in those situations so it was at least I could, you know, make do but it's really so much luck like it could have gone either way so you know so easily um, again unless you're talking players who are used to that doing that often and they can bring their best chess to it but it's rare usually it's just about keeping your nerve a little bit right
0: and you mentioned being surprised he took black i i, th- I th- sort of thought the conventional wisdom is that you should take black and, and I don't those.
1: think so it really depends on on time control if you don't have increment or delay Getting actually flagged is a big problem. So, for example, if it's four minutes to three minutes and there's no delay, you'd be insane to take black. Oh, okay. Like that's a whole extra minute. That's a lot of time. And I think it was maybe it was five four. I, I don't right. Know yeah, exactly, five four. I feel like is more me.
0: common. But. So
1: I was like, man, you do not. But I, I think that you know, he just had more faith maybe in holding with the black pieces. You know, maybe he thought, oh, Josh's black repertoire is better than white repertoire, but I, I doubt anything went into it like that. I think he just thought that it was safer or whatever. But uh, I would have for sure taken white, so I wasn't unhappy. Okay.
0: Uh, so All here. right. So, so Josh, just a couple more questions, if if you don't mind. Um, so I, I asked you about career highlights, but I also sort of similar vein, but not mm-hmm. the exact same question. Do you do you have any like uh, brushes with like chess legends, like any you know, in your time in St. Louis or from your travels, like? Um, any memorable experiences with, uh, you know, famous and, uh, you know, chess players that our listeners always want to hear about? I
1: I'm I'm a bit boring in that because I just haven't had that many brushes. Even with, like, the top players today, like, I just haven't, uh, you know, I I haven't met most of them. Like, you know, I know Fabiano, I know, but mainly that's because, like, you know, he's kind of a friend of mine. Like, we hang out more in St. Louis, you know, with a group of people who are also friends, and it's like, so I know him personally, but that's, you know. <laughs> right. That's about as much as it gets. I don't I don't know too many of them um as as far as like, you know, people I would hang out with or anyone who I've as far as past champions, I mean, I I, I there was a funny one. I, I did meet uh Kasparov. It was kind of funny though how it happened because it was like um basically we, it went with a friend of mine kind of dragged me to his book signing. <laughs> And, uh, you know, she wanted a book signed or whatever. And so, um, you know, basically we were there and then we met Mig, who, um, in case people don't know, that's like, you know, he does uh, Kasparov's press, I think. um, Yeah. And stuff like that. He does lots of things for him. So and I knew Mig. Right. And so he was like, oh, Josh whatever. And then, you know, he uh, he actually like um, got the person who I was with's name wrong in any way. But we won't get into that. Uh, But basically he introduced, we went up to, um, you know, Kasparov, right? And uh, he introduced me as America. It was just after I became a GM. And, uh, you know, he said, like, this is America's newest GM. And Kasparov was like, wow, that's impressive. (laughs) Like super sarcastic. Like, yeah, that's Kasparov. Uh, And so that was kind of my, and of course, then the person I was with, Went up to him, and then he was all smiley, you know. You know right. I mean. So I'm like, uh-huh.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm very glad you shared that story.
1: Yeah. Uh, that, that was kind of the one. Um, just,
0: just in case you were thinking you were better than Kasparov. Yeah, he yeah, put, yeah. He, he put like, you wow, in your place.
1: Impressive. I'm like, yeah, dude, I know it's not that impressive to you, but come on. <laughs> behave yourself for two seconds. That's hilarious.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, well, th- thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah. The only other one I have actually is uh, I was with my dad at Amateur Team East, and um, it was basically like he doesn't know chess or anything like this. So he just was there taking me there basically. Um, and th- that was the year where Karpov played. And he had a team of him, Henley and Krush, and then like some random 1200. And it was, But it was a big deal, Karpov playing, right? Of course. Um, so then there was this, uh, you know, I, I saw like I was looking for my dad. And uh, I saw he was in the restaurant and he was like casually – chatting with this dude <laughs> and my dad's like a, like opposite of me like i'm very antisocial. he's extremely social he's the type you know he would go up to a bar and he'd you know talk to everyone type of thing and he was just chatting and then i look and it's Karpov. <laughs> and afterwards i'm like dad you know you're trying to Karpov? he's like oh i just thought it was just another dude
0: <laughs> so did he know who Karpov was no, <laughs> I mean when you said the name. Did no, he, when like, I said
1: the name, he kind of knew, but it was okay. Like, I'm like, yeah, he was a world champion, blah, blah blah. So, but from then on, he called him Jad, like just another dude. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, okay. I don't know well, what they talked about. It was the weirdest thing. That's funny,
0: uh, and and like yeah, people like that. It's like they have a better chance of becoming like buddy buddy with him than yeah. like like an introvert like you or me because we would be like pestering him with questions about his career and stuff. I, and I like,
1: wouldn't even go up. I'd just be like, hey man, what's up? Uh, yeah, but I right. mean,
0: even if you ended up in a conversation with him. Yeah, where, yeah. Where was, you...
1: I mean, I'd be nervous, though, because I know who he is and all this. But, right. Know, whereas someone else. Um, but I don't have too many brushes with. Uh, well, those were great. Legends, uh, but you, those are the two which. which you've, stick done out,
0: your, you've done your duty. I mean, great stories yeah. about Kasparov and Karpov. Yeah, well, I, the
1: Kasparov one is very classic because most people who know him are like, yeah, I believe that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So last thing, Josh, is the, according to the Internet, you learned chess at, at uh, age three. Mhm.
1: I I never thought I would say this
0: (laughs) amazing I I mean uh so did you like I mean obviously I don't expect you to remember yourself but Mm -hmm. you know the the legend in your family did you understand checkmate when you were three
1: uh apparently like I, I was very I mean again the legend in my family could be false who knows uh but it's basically apparently I was my one of my uncles got a set and uh You know, and it was like, you know, I I was just after my third birthday around because I was born in December and it was around Christmas. Right. So it was like just after my third birthday and my uncles, one of my uncles got a set and they didn't really play, but they just played around. And and apparently I was just watching and I didn't take my eyes off it at all. And then I asked them to teach me and apparently I learned the moves in one or two hours. Again, I have no idea if that's actually true. But basically the story is that I then I just kept playing everyone in my family till no one, like I just beat everyone and then I got a teacher. <laughs> okay. So right. essentially that was the story. As far as knowing checkmate and all the details, I don't know, but apparently they taught me the rules in a couple hours. I don't know if that's actually factual. Huh.
0: So, so my son is five and it's not, not entirely clear if he knows what checkmate is.
1: Checkmate's so, really hard. I mean, it's one of those things that like, it's why ch- ch- checkers is a lot easier to explain because you just take everything. You know? Yeah, Exactly. Uh, some teachers I know actually do that with chess. At first, you just take everything, and only later do they explain checkmate. Which to me is—I don't know—I don't think I'd do that. But uh, checkmate's a tough thing because it's—it's when I tell kids like, "Oh, you can't take the king in chess," they're like, "What?"
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very confusing. Uh, it is. Yeah. Take it. So yeah. it,
1: that's a tough one, I think, for anyone. And I, again, I have doubts that I understood everything perfectly at three. That—that that sounds okay. false. But so uh I, you know, I
0: shouldn't so I shouldn't give up on, on my son's chest just yet. No,
1: no, no, no. I mean well, I told you about Shanklin, right? Like he learned the moves when he was like twelve. Yeah. Uh I worked with Larry Christensen and I'm pretty sure he was in his late teens. Uh or something like that when he really started. So it's like I mean, five I wouldn't be
0: No, I was I was mostly just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was mostly kidding. But uh yeah. but, but I, yeah, it is but uh just in case, yeah, I would not be <laughs>
1: panicking.
0: <laughs> I'm not a stage dad, so uh not not that important to me, but um yeah. but I was curious about the learning in three thing. Yeah. Um cool. Well Josh, this was excellent. I think uh I think we've covered everything on this year this list of mine.
1: Oh, that's good to hear.
0: So I definitely encourage listeners to check out your YouTube series and I encourage you to stick with it. I mean these things, you know, they sometimes they can start slowly, but I mean as someone yeah. who hosts a podcast and Feel like a reasonable number of people listen to it but then when i look yeah. at the number of views that these youtube chess videos get they're like astronomical i mean so yeah. well so, i mean just
1: your your podcast has really taken off almost everyone i knew like I, I i get asked regularly whether i've been on it and then i'm like they're like why aren't you on it yet and i'm like i don't know you know it's so,
0: all <laughs> it's all my fault sorry sorry everyone <laughs> no
1: but it's it's just you know i'm like well they're getting people like Polgar on it they're not gonna ask me <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's like, uh, you know, but it was, it was great to finally be on it. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: Okay. Well, you, you were always going to be asked for the record. <laughs> so only a matter of when, um, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Josh. This was, this was great. Oh, uh, and I guess so the best way to reach you is probably through your Twitter or through your YouTube page.
1: Uh, yeah, so you can, I mean, I have DMS open on Twitter, uh, the YouTube page, you can leave comments. Uh, my, there's a Facebook fan page also I have, um you can like gm josh fidel it's easy enough to search for and uh definitely those are the best places to contact me my we- i used to have a website which i'm trying to get back up but for the moment it's still defunct but uh but between my youtube page facebook and twitter uh i should be quite reachable so
0: excellent okay well thanks a lot josh and you know, yep. good luck in uh, your upcoming tournaments thank you very much The new Perpetual Chess theme music is courtesy of Geert Vandervelt. Special shout-out to him. I also want to thank everyone who supports the podcast. That includes people who tell their friends about it, people who write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, and most of all, those who have donated to support the show. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Without the support of my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Chess partners, the show would not be possible. They are... Adam Ralph, Adam Van Adrian Gutierrez, Andres Chris I hope I did okay there, Andres on your name. Alex Pejas, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Banastia Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin Kelly Palmer. Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Lorraine Doré, Matthew Passy, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Tempo, Ricky Rajalva, Rob Lazorchak, Robert Steiner, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Sonics, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotello, Victor Vrenkul, Zhao Cheng, and Jivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll be back next week with another great...